So Ecclesiastes chapter 12, I didn't tell you that, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, and this book, this book of Ecclesiastes, the, the preachings, or the preacher, if you will, actually go, keep your, keep your finger there, and go to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. We're going to bounce a little bit back there anyway. But look at the first few words of Ecclesiastes. Uh, and and a, lot of your, a lot of your copies of the Word of God, at the top it says Ecclesiastes or the preacher. The preacher. Verse 1 says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanities of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. You're thinking, really? <laughs> well, let's look at these things. So this book, again, along with Song of Solomon... Uh, and the book of Proverbs was written, we believe, by the then king of Israel, King David's son, King, king Solomon. And he is widely known by Jews and Christians and even maybe even some out of, out of that circle as the wisest man who has ever lived on this planet outside of Jesus Christ, of course. And this description of him is an accurate description because it's based on our reading of Scripture and our understanding of 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 10, where God... Uh, in response to Solomon's request for wisdom. If you, go, if you remember there, Solomon pleaded for wisdom from God. God made him the king, and uh, he didn't ask for riches and glory and all this thing. He asked for wisdom. And God responded with, Lo, I have given thee a wise and an understanding heart, so that there was none like thee before thee, uh, neither after thee shall any rise like unto thee. And then God continued in the next verse, or a few verses down, by saying, I have also given thee that which thou hast not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be any among the kings like unto thee all thy days. So King Solomon was the wisest, richest, and most honorable king of Israel who had just about anything a man could want. Just about anything a man can want at that time. But as many of us already know, even... With all the wisdom a man could have, Solomon still allowed himself to be derailed, to live unholy. 1 Kings 11.4 states that when Solomon was old, that his wives, many of them, mind you, 150, I think, right? His wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God. His God. Uh, it's important that it says his God. But I think about the many wives that he has, and I know this is being recorded, so I've got to be careful here. I cannot imagine having more than one. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. Amen. It's a good thing. But in, in Solomon's life, in a very real sense, we learn from Solomon that if happiness can be found in wisdom, women, or wealth, he would have found it. He would have found it. So don't go searching there. And if you're a woman, of course, it's not found in men. And we all know this, but it's, it's happiness, true happiness, is only found in the person of Jesus Christ. And one major theme going through the book of Ecclesiastes, throughout the words of this book, all of these words can really be summed up nicely in verse 2, which we already read. Vanity of vanity, saith the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. All is vanity. So Solomon begins and end this, ends this book with the same phrase, actually. You're there in, in chapter 12. Uh, we just read the second verse. Go look at verse 8 of chapter 12. He says, Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. All is vanity. All is vanity. In fact, throughout the entirety of the whole book of Ecclesiastes, there seems to be a theme of regret and a hint of bitterness from the author, as if from an old man who has made many mistakes in life. And this takeaway, that, that concept there, that thought has led many throughout the church age to believe that Solomon penned Proverbs and the Song of Solomon in his 
before he was taken away with those, with those women, at, when he was young, and he penned the book of Ecclesiastes when he was very old. Now, we certainly don't know this for sure. It's actually anonymous internally. Now, he calls himself the king of Israel, or the king of, of Judah, David, king of Jerusalem, rather, but there are many kings of Jerusalem. Now, we, the, the, the general consensus is that it's Solomon, uh, but internally it's anonymous. But that it is beneficial for us is clear in that it's in the Scriptures. It is in the holy canon of Scripture. And furthermore, um, it, is, has, it has been the general consensus throughout the church age that Solomon returned to God at the end of his life and poured out his heart in these last 12 chapters. And as he looked back on, this, on his life through the wisdom God gave him, there's much that you and I can learn from many things, through the seemingly cynical words of Solomon. For example, again, in verse 17 of chapter 1, I'll read it to you. Verse 17 of chapter 1, he writes, And I gave my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this is also a vexation of spirit. So he gave his heart to know wisdom, but then he continued in the next verse, And much wisdom is much grief. And then in chapter 2, verse 16, he asked the sobering question about the reality of a life lived. What's the purpose of life? How, why do we live so long? What is all this for? And he asked the question, how, dies death, uh, how dieth the wise man? How does a wise man die? And then he answered himself, just like the fool. Just like the fool. But in Ecclesiastes 3.13, Solomon wrote that every man should eat and enjoy the good of all his labor because it's the gift of God. Working and those benefits from working is a gift from God. And in chapter 9, verse 12, he wrote again, Whosoever or whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might, for there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave whither thou goest. There's that, there's that clutch, uh, that clenching, if you will, back to the grave. But on and on throughout this book, Solomon writes about the frailty of man. On the one hand, we see the foolishness of living for things that have no impact in this life beyond the grave. And on the other hand, we read about the fulfillment that can be found in an honest life that is lived in a way that pleases our Creator. And by the time we get to chapter 12, to the almost very last words of the book, we're going to find the title of our message this morning, verse 13 of chapter 12. The Bible says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter, the conclusion of the whole matter. And with that said, let's, let's read the entirety of Ecclesiastes chapter 12. And I'm going to ask you to stand, if you don't mind, in honor of the word of uh, God's word. Look at verse number 1. The Bible says, Remember now thy Creator in the days of thy youth, while the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. While the sun or the or the light, or the moon, or the stars be not darkened, nor the clouds return after the rain in the day when the keepers of the house shall tremble and the, and the strong men shall bow themselves and the, and the grinders cease because they are few and those that look out of the windows be darkened. And the doors shall be shut in the streets when the sound of the grinding is low and he shall rise up at the voice of the bird and, and all the daughters of music shall be brought low. Verse 5 says, And when they shall be afraid of that which is high, and fears shall be in the way, and the almond tree shall flourish, and the grasshopper shall burden, and the desire shall fail, because man goeth to his long home, and the mourners go about the streets. Or ever the silver cord be loosed, or the golden bough be broken, or the pitcher be broken, and the fountain or the, or the wheel broken at the cistern, then shall the dust 
returned to earth as it was, and the Spirit shall be returned unto the God who gave it. And we're going to focus on these last verses this morning. Verse 8, vanity of vanity, saith the preacher, all is vanity. And moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still sought he still taught the people uh, knowledge. Yea, he gave good heed and sought out and set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought to find out the acceptable words, and that which was written was upright, even words of truth. The words of the wise are as goads, and as nails fastened by the masters of assemblies which are given from one shepherd. And further by these, my son, be admonished. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Verse 13, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you this morning. We thank you for the cross. We do pray for uh, America and all this, all this violence that's going on, Lord. We pray for violence all over the world, even, even Ukraine this morning, Lord. We pray for all these things. We want peace, Lord. But we know that this world is a fallen world. And we know that there's many things in this world that you uh, just allow to happen that are against your will. And Lord, help us to be obedient to your will this morning. Help us to see you high and lifted up. Help us uh, in, in all that we are, in, all, in every fiber of our being, Lord, worship you in spirit and in truth this morning, in song and sermon, Lord, all that we are. May we give it to you this morning. Lord, meet with us in a special way. Help us to see the words, these wise words, and apply them to our hearts and lives this morning. We love you. We thank you again for the cross. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray. Amen. Please, please be seated. So the conclusion of the whole matter. You know, when a person writes, when a student maybe writes a dissertation or a book maybe, uh, there is usually a purpose or a thesis statement that captures the entire gist of what he has written or the heart of what is written. And this, I believe, is verse 13 of the entire book of Ecclesiastes. Verse 13 where he says, let us hear the conclusion. And then he goes on and on what, what this whole thing is about. But before we get to that, I would like to highlight the moreover, the word moreover there in verse number 9. He says, and moreover. In this passage, uh, Solomon, who is writing about himself very clearly in the third person, he wrote that because the preacher says all is vanity, he didn't just give up. Just because everything is vain and vexation of spirit, everything is, everything is dark and wicked, just because all those things may be true, I'm still going to do something. Look at what he does. And moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. He still gave good heed. And he still sought out and set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought to find out acceptable words. That which was written was upright, even words of truth. Verse 11 tells us the words of the wise are as goads and as nails fastened by the masters of assembly, which are given by one shepherd. So furthermore, he sought, he sought for the right words to convey what was upright. And he argued here in the inspired text that his words are words to live by, even for us today. And even uh, this morning, we're going to look at this as uh, my, my heading here, if you will, the prodding of wisdom. The prodding of wisdom. Look again at verse number 12. The Bible says, Solomon writes, the words of the wise are as goads. A goad, now, it's not a word that we normally use, especially if you don't live on a farm uh, in the 1800s and beyond, but there's this long stick about this high maybe, and it's sharpened to a point, and it's used to poke the animals, to keep them in a right direction. It was used to prod the ox to keep him moving correctly in a straight line. 
One modern definition for a goad is something that stimulates someone into action. Jesus told Paul that it was hard for him to kick against the pricks or to kick against the goads. In other words, the Apostle Paul was kicking against the wisdom of God, and God had a direction for Paul, so he prodded him in that direction. And many times, if you think about it, he's kicking against those pricks, so they hurt him. So God was prodding Paul, and Paul kicked against those things, even at his own peril. And here in Ecclesiastes, I believe is as clear as clear can be, the words are wisdom, the words of wisdom are there to prod us in the ways of wisdom. We are to be wise, and these words prod us into walking in wisdom. So God has a direction for us prodded by wisdom. So Solomon's words are not just winsome, they're, they're wise words, they are wisdom, they are words to live by, words that guide us and even cause great discomfort from time to time, but they are greatly needed. We need wisdom in our lives. But notice also the words of the wise are not just goads, they're nails. They're nails fastened by the masters of assemblies, nails driven deep by the masters. Put differently, the words of the wise, they're not just good sayings that we can hang on our walls in our houses, although I encourage you to do that. We have a couple Bible verses throughout our home, but they're more than just something we hang on plaques or make on plaques to hang on our wall. They are tried and true, even timeless concepts, not just validated by one man. We get the idea here that the wisest man in the world, in, 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 one, way or the, in one way, shape, or form, he vetted his words before counsel. Before counsel. Vetted his conclusions, if you will, before a counsel that feared God. Now, these words are inspired, and God, God has a way of making these words, make it to the page, if you will. But the same man who wrote this wrote also Proverbs 1-7, which states the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Who also wrote Proverbs 24-6, by wise counsel shalt thou make war, and in a multitude of counselors there is safety. In other words, the words of the wise prod us in the right direction, and then wise counsel helps us stay fixed or fastened in that direction like nails in a board. And while men fasten these nails of knowledge, after the words of the wise prod us in the right direction, the goads and the nails, I love this last phrase of verse 11, they are given from one shepherd. Who could that be? Who could that be? Now, kings often refer to themselves as shepherds of Israel, but I don't believe for a second that Solomon is referring to himself. He is echoing the words of his earthly father, King David, who wrote, the Lord is my shepherd. Solomon knew explicitly because God told him that his wisdom and every wise word is from God himself. In Ecclesiastes 7.20, he makes it very clear. He wrote this, There is not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. And he would certainly agree with Psalm 111, which states, verse 10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Understanding, uh, a good understanding have all they that do his commandments. So the words of the wise are God's words, are God's words. And in a greater sense for us today, the words of the wise are God's word. It's the word of God, the Bible. 
the scripture, the entirety of scripture, because we are all sheep in his pasture. He is our chief shepherd. And Solomon continues with this in verse 12 by, by saying this. He says, by these, look at verse 12, and further, so he gets this words of the wise. He's talking about these words of the wise. They're, they're there to prod us with the masters of assemblies trying to keep us in the right direction. And he says, by these, my son, be admonished. What are the by these? The words of the wise. By the words of the wise, which are given by one shepherd, we are to be admonished. We are to be warned, to be led, to be taught, to be admonished by the words given from our chief shepherd, the Word of God. All of it, from Genesis to Revelation, it is the Word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture, including Ecclesiastes chapter 12, is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So get this now, I like this. God's words prods us in a certain direction, and the preachers and teachers of His Word help us stay fixed in that direction. You know, one part of my job as a pastor is to drive home and to fasten the truths of Scripture deep into the minds and uh, the hearts and minds of His flock. But each of us, as a part of His flock, must first ourselves be prodded with those truths. It's hard for a teacher or a preacher to fasten those truths if we don't even know what those truths are. We must ourselves be prodded first, just like Solomon talks about. Notice in the, in the text there, the words of the wise do the prodding, but the masters of assemblies do the fastening. And all of it is orchestrated by our chief shepherd. You and I, as sheep in the Lord's pasture, we must do our part in allowing the word of God to prod us in the right direction. We must read and study the Word of God and then allow ourselves to be teachable in order to fasten God's truth deep enough within us that it modifies our behavior. If it's just out here and it does nothing for you, it's not deep enough. It's not fastened like, ta- like, uh, like Solomon talks about. It has to be deep enough to modify our behavior as His redeemed children. And verse 12 continues with, Of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. Now, this is, this is not a charge for us being in, in school, whether it's elementary or high school or, or college. Well, the Bible says too many books make you weary. You know? So we don't need to be studying these things. But that's not what Solomon's talking about here. This is not a charge to refrain from studying. But we are to be ultimately led and admonished by God's book by the Word of God, not the words of man's book. It's not telling you not to study those books. It's to bring those books under the authority of Scripture. One commentator by the name of Warren Worsby put it this way, don't test God's truth by the many books written by men. Test men's books by the truth of God's Word. If we're not a people of the book, then we really shouldn't even be meeting here. This book is where we learn about Jesus Christ. We must uh, must be under the authority of this book, not commentaries, not any other book the Word of God. And then moving on to verse 13 in our text here, which is kind of the right in the heart of our message here, right in the middle of it, we find the whole duty of man. The whole duty of man. Let us hear, verse 13, the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. We'll call this, because I'm one to use the P's, the purpose of man, our purpose. And just from this one verse... At the end of Ecclesiastes, we must all admit that the Bible clearly teaches that our purpose of existence, our purpose of existence as humans, as human beings, is to fear God 
and to obey God. There's no wiggle room to fear God and to obey God. Remember Proverbs 1.7? The Bible states the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. 110, uh, 111.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We are to fear God. Now realize, I do realize the day in which we live. And I realize that God loves us also more than we can fathom, and His grace is beyond our comprehension, but so is the purity and the holiness of His justice. The Bible states that we are to fear God. Now, this is not just an Old Testament concept. This is an eternal concept. I want you to take your Bible and go to different places here. Go to the book of Revelation, chapter 19. And we'll go back to Revelation here, certainly. So mark it some other way. It won't be in chapter 19, but it'll be close to chapter 19. But go to Revelation, chapter 19. The gospel, or the, uh, the, the, the apostle John writing this. In Revelation 19, look at verse number 5. I'm going to turn there myself. Revelation chapter 19, verse 5. The Bible says, John writes, and a voice, and a voice came out of the throne, saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that respect him, ye that love him, ye that fear him. Now, all those other things are true, but John wrote, Ye that fear him. And from Genesis all the way to Revelation, we read about fearing God. One commentator, again, I think also Warren Wordsby, if we fear God, we don't fear man. But if we fear man, we fear everything. We fear God, we don't fear anybody else because God is our master. The Greek word used here for fear in the book of Revelation is actually where we derive the word phobia. And while the word has developed over the years, we are to fear God above all else. And the overemphasis of many today on the love of God or the grace of God or the, the mercy of God, it is a grave mistake. It is a grave mistake. Why? Because all of God's attributes are equal. I think we live in what's called a hyper-grace uh, time, if you will. Oh, God will forgive. Maybe. I mean, we know if you're a Christian, it's all under the blood anyway, but that's not a license to sin. We are to fear God as much as we are to love God and and enjoy His mercy. We are to fear Him in a childlike faith. I think it's important that we realize that we are to fear Him in a childlike faith, not as if He were some evil dictator or some ogre over top of us. He is our Father. A biblical fear is still, though, a little more than our modern understanding of reverence. We are to fear God. Paul wrote in Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, that we are to work out or to live out our own salvation. How are we supposed to do that? In fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you. God is the reason for the fear and trembling. You know, when I was a child, I had a healthy fear of my father. I really did. Uh, and even now, there is a mild fear it's not as strong as it used to be, but there is still some sort of fear there of disappointing him, of letting my earthly father down. And by the way, fear is not necessarily a bad thing. It's an emotion created by God. Fear of causing an accident might keep you awake while driving. It might even keep you from getting behind the wheel. So it's a good thing. Fear of God and fear of failing God should naturally or supernatural, however you want to look at this, could lead us right to the next duty of man, which is obedience. Fear God 
and keep His commandments. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. To some, obedience may seem like a trivial thing. It may seem like a trivial thing for mature adults to talk about in in an adult gathering of, of preaching. But the idea of obedience begins with God, and nothing about God is trivial. Even in the very first chapter of the Bible, we read about obedience. We read about God giving commandments. In fact, God said in Genesis 1-3, let there be light. Ten times He said something like that. Let there be light, let this happen, let that happen. Ten times the phrase, and God said there in the first chapter. Ten commandments, if you will, before we even get to Exodus. Ten times God commanded and the earth obeyed. And in chapters 2 and 3 respectively, God gave one more commandment that if kept would probably be the last commandment, but unlike the rest of creation, man did not obey. Man decided to disobey. And because of this disobedience, our merciful God delivered to man divine commandments all throughout the Old Testament designed to bring him into fellowship with God. Commandments there to bring him back to God. It's not, we don't live as Christians under the blood. We don't live, oh, I have to do this, I have to do that. I get to do this. I get to do that. And if I fail to do that, I'm still forgiven because the blood of Jesus Christ is greater than all my sin. But this obedience God wants us to follow. Solomon considered the keeping of these commandments that God delivered up until this time. As a matter of fact, there's over 600 commandments in the Old Testament. But he considered them along with the fear of God, the whole duty of man, the whole duty of man. And while the entirety of the commandments under the old commandment, as if we already read here, are profitable doctrine and and so forth, instruction and righteousness, God has made the whole duty of man a little clearer for us today than He did for the wisest man on the planet. You see, like the psalmist wrote in Psalm 119.100, the psalmist said that we can understand more than the ancients because we keep His precepts, because we obey Him, which is truthfully not that much different than what Solomon is talking about here, what he considered the purpose of man. We can just see our obedience. We can see that our obedience leads to Jesus Christ. Solomon had a clue, maybe he had some, some, um, some, maybe some, some inklings, however you want to say that, some ideas about what it could lead to, but we see Jesus Christ. We have the New Testament, and the New Testament clearly teaches that all the commandments in the Old Testament point to who? Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.24 states that the law was our schoolmaster, like a school bus, if you will, bringing us to Jesus Christ. And referencing the words, the world's inability to comprehend that wisdom. You all remember where Paul preached on Mars Hill there in modern-day Athens in Acts chapter 17? He got up there and he said, During the times of this ignorance, referring to the world's inability to understand God's wisdom and obey His laws, during the times of this ignorance, God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Look at it, look at it this way. The whole duty of man is to fear God and to obey God. Well, one way or or the other, every man will fear God because every man is going to kneel before Jesus Christ. It is written. Obedience before God, however, like we talked about last week, true obedience comes from within. It comes from the heart. 
True obedience comes from the heart. I've said this, and you probably heard this before, when I'm like an eight-year-old, whatever, my mom says, you need to sit here because you've been disobedient. And in my mind, I'm thinking, I'm sitting here on the outside, but on the inside, I'm jumping up and down all over the place. And she's, but that's not true obedience. That's compliance. Obedience, true obedience, comes from the heart. All, and God commands here that all men everywhere should repent, or to repent. God commands us all individually to turn from self, to turn from sin, to the Savior of the world. We are commanded to repent and receive Christ as our personal Savior. That takes a little twist. We're, we're out here as Christians, and we want to invite people to, the, to, to know Christ, and these are good things. We should invite people, but it is a commandment to follow Jesus Christ. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 7.20, Again, there is not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. So God sent, because of that, God sent His only begotten Son to become our sin. To become our sin. I had a, a conversation with a, a young man not too long ago, last week I think, and one of the things I shared with him, we talked about confession before priest and all those things like that, and uh, I shared with him, I was like, you know, I don't have to do that. I am under the blood of Jesus Christ. And he says, if that's true, that is the most liberating thing I've ever heard of. But it is true. God paid it all. Jesus paid it all on the cross. We must, must put our faith in Him. 1 Corinthians 5.21 states that God made Jesus to be sin for us. He made Him to be sin so that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. We flip-flop, if you will. He takes on our sin. We get His righteousness by faith. You see, if the whole duty of man and if the whole purpose of man is to fear God and keep His commandments, then with the light of the New Testament that you and I have, we can only conclude that it is our duty, it is our purpose as a people to be saved. We were created to be children of God, created to be saved. I've said this often, if, we, if you and I leave this world and we don't spend an eternity with God and we spend an eternity in hell, we went there against the will of God because He created you to be saved. He created you to be redeemed. Because of what Solomon wrote under the inspiration of God and even more about what, uh, because of what Christ did for each of us on the cross of Calvary, it is the distinct duty of every man to accept Jesus Christ as his personal Savior. This is God's will for your life and the grand purpose of your existence. Which leads us to the last verse of Ecclesiastes. And if this is true, that this book here, this letter, was penned late in the life of Solomon, these are the very last words from the wisest man who ever lived outside of Jesus Christ. He says, For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Now, we've talked this morning a little bit about the prodding of wisdom. We've talked just now about the purpose of man, the whole duty of man. And now Solomon concludes with the promise of judgment. There is a promise of judgment. I've already alluded to the Apostle Paul's inspired words to the Philippian church, recorded there in Philippians chapter 2. But I'm going to say this again. Verses 10 and 11 of Philippians 2 says, At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's not just words written. This is going to happen. And speaking of Jesus, he echoed what Solomon wrote by stating every idle word that men shall speak. We're going to give an account in the day of judgment. In context here, Solomon's point 
is that because every word and because every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil, will be brought before God into judgment, every man then ought to fulfill his obligation as a person by fearing God and keeping his commandments. Every work that we do, whether it's secret, whether it's, you think it's secret or whether it's not, ought to be good before God because it will be brought before God in judgment. In the New Testament, you already have your place marked there in Revelation. Keep it marked, but keep also Ecclesiastes marked if you can, and go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In the New Testament, we read about the judgment seat. We read about two judgments, actually, in the New Testament. We read about the judgment seat of Christ, and we read about the great white throne adjustment. And we're going to talk a little bit about, not real long this morning, about the differences between these two judgments. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, we read, By the Apostle Paul, the inspired words of God, whether we labor, that whether we be present or absent, wherefore we labor, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done whether it be good or whether it be bad. As you can see, in this text, Paul includes himself in this judgment. He includes himself in this judgment with the Corinthian church, and nothing, nothing is written about us coming up short before God in this judgment. Now, we are all certainly fall short of God's glory, but Paul, the Corinthian church, and every believer will appear before Christ under the blood of Jesus Christ. We are the redeemed. So keep that in mind now. Now take your Bible and go to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. Look at verse 11 of chapter 20. John again writes, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, Stand before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of the, those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And the death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now you may have noticed something very different, very different between these two judgments, if you will. At the judgment seat of Christ, Paul speaks of the intendees receiving something, right? Receiving something, whether their works be good or bad. In fact, to elaborate on that, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul wrote again, he says, at that judgment, if any, man, if any man's work abide, which he hath built thereon in this life, he shall receive a reward. But if any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved. But here in the book of Revelation, at the great white throne judgment, the attendees, what are they? Already dead. They are dead. There's no talk about receiving anything other than condemnation. Dead and death are paired with hell. There is no whether good or bad comments. They are just judged according to their works as those not found written in the book of life. 
and back to Solomon's thought in Ecclesiastes and our application of the same this morning, the conclusion of the whole matter is this. To allow the wise word of God to prod us in the direction God wants us to go. To allow spiritual leaders to deepen those truths through sound biblical preaching. To have a healthy fear of God and keep His commandments beginning with repenting and turning to Jesus Christ for eternal life and your continued sanctification. To realize the whole conclusion of of the matter is to realize and be fully persuaded that God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. To also realize that the only way we can survive the wrath of God is at the judgment seat of Christ. Our salvation must be in Christ and in Christ alone. Romans 10.9 says, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Remember Paul's sermon again in Acts chapter 17. I'll read a little bit more of it this time. He said, And the times of this ignorance God winked at, our ignorance, the world's ignorance of not being obedient to God, God winked at it, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Why? Because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man, Jesus Christ, by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, and that he hath raised him from the dead. There's coming a day. You know, if trusting Christ is not something you have done, it's not something you've ever even thought of, or, or you just want to go to church and maybe enjoy the benefits, the earthly benefits of being a Christian, if trusting Christ is not something you have done, one can only wonder how long God will wink at your disobedience. How long will God allow you to be in that? Because the command is to repent now. It's the whole duty of man to follow Jesus Christ with all your heart, with all your mind and all your soul. Trust Christ today. And for us who are Christians, just, I don't know, be revived. This passage for me brought me physically to my knees preaching this. I am so thankful for what Christ did for me on the cross. Have that motivator. Uh, just just in, put a fire in your bones, as Jeremiah talks about, and just tell the world about Christ and at the same time live in a way that glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go to him in prayer.